Hello and welcome to The North in Numbers, a podcast that gets the human stories behind the stats. I'll be your host, Annie Goke. As a data journalist, I write local news stories based on statistics for regional papers up and down the country. Each fortnight, I'll be looking at the figures that particularly affect the North and speaking to experts and those most affected to get their take on the issues facing our communities. In this episode, we explore the introduction of universal credit and the impact the controversial new benefit system is having on families across the North. We travelled to Teesside, an area with a high number of people on universal credit, to speak to claimants about their experiences. You'll hear firsthand how some people are desperately struggling under the system, as well as from charities and experts who want to see it improved. Universal credit was first introduced in 2013 and is replacing six legacy benefits, including unemployment benefit, tax credits and housing benefit. A spokesperson for the Department for Work and Pensions said, We spend over £95 billion a year on welfare and have simplified and improved the benefit system through universal credit. Universal credit provides a vital safety net for people who are out of work or on low wages. However, critics argue that its introduction has put poor reclaimants in particular at heightened risk of hunger, debt and rent arrears, ill health and homelessness. As well as leaving claimants with nothing to live on during the transition period, which takes longer than a month, many are then finding they are then worse off than they were while on legacy benefits. Flaws in the system and technical problems have also left people without any money while issues are ironed out. Jasmine Basran is the Manager of Policy and Public Affairs at Crisis, a homelessness charity that has been raising concerns about universal credit since its introduction. Universal credit has huge potential to work. Unfortunately, in its current state, it doesn't quite bring about kind of the changes we need to the system to make sure that people are getting the right support. So what we are seeing is um, the system as it is being rolled out, it's not invested in fully. um, So people aren't getting the amounts of support that they need. And it's also not tailored enough to people to reflect their everyday situations. So it's kind of two issues really with it, which is some of the elements of the design of it and then some of the ways in which it's being put in place and carried out in practice which are kind of really impacting on people. Universal credit was supposed to be fully rolled out across the UK by 2017 but it has already fallen at least seven years behind schedule. It is now not expected to be fully operational until September 2024. However, anyone who makes a fresh claim for benefits or those whose circumstances have changed will be moved on to the system through what is called natural migration. The number affected is rising every month. Across the North, there are now more than 805,000 people on universal credit, up from closer to 495,000 at the start of last year. One of the visible side effects of the introduction of universal credit has been a huge rise in the number of people relying on food banks. The Trussell Trust, the UK's largest food bank network, say that food bank referral rates are more than twice as high as the national average in areas where the full rollout has taken place. While universal credit has not yet been fully rolled out in Teesside, the area has a particularly high number of people on the system. There are currently around 37,500 people on universal credit in Teesside. It means one in every 15 people in the area are now on the benefits system, much higher than the national average of one in every 23 people. In the area, 16,521 emergency food packages were handed out by the Trussell Trust in 2018-19 up from 10,831 in 2013-14, when Universal Credit was first introduced. Gary Lemon, Director of Policy and Research at the Trussell Trust, offered some more up-to-date figures. So between April and September 2019, the last six-month period that we've got figures for, in the northeast alone, food banks in the Trussell Trust network distributed 42,000 food bank parcels and 15,000 of those went to kids, which is a 26% increase on the year before. And 
that's um, not just something that's happening in the northeast. This, this is a picture that we're seeing nationally. The DWP say that the reasons for people using food banks are complex and cannot be attributed to one cause. But Gary maintains that universal credit is a major factor. It's not the whole reason behind the, uh, the increase that we've seen, but it's a, big, it's a big reason behind it. Krista Coulson has been volunteering at the Trussell Trust Food Bank in Redcar for the last seven years. I asked her if she'd seen an increase in demand in that time. Yes, definitely, especially since the Universal Club has been rolled out. I don't think that the system's very fair. I don't think it looks at individuals' needs. Um, and I think it's quite, it's quite, they've streamlined it out so it doesn't take into account people with disabilities, people with children, people. So there's, it's just one rule for all and every case is different. Mostly um, what we find is people, when it, they first go on to Universal Credit, don't get their first payment for a long time. So therefore they're actually living on nothing. Gary also agrees that the main issue with the universal credit as it stands is the transition period. So number one for us is this minimum five-week wait that people have to endure before they get the money to which they're entitled. And um, what we've been doing is we've been talking to people, we've been coming to our food banks and asking them what this five-week wait is doing for them, doing to their lives. So it's causing actually real destitution. So people are telling us, obviously, that they're unable to afford food, heating, lighting, clothing, uh, toiletries, tampons, and it's causing debt as well. So um, we're seeing increasingly people with multiple debts. Peter Bamber is the team leader at the Red Car Food Bank. Out of the 12-plus vouchers we've done today, three of those are waiting that five-week period and have been left with nothing during that five-week period, which is why they've come into us. And on each occasion, we have to say to them, look, you can get four vouchers within a six-month period. If you're still like this in two weeks' time, come back and see us. We shouldn't have to be saying that. The, the government response to the five-week wait is that, well, um, what people are entitled to is an advance to bridge that. Um, and we know that increasing numbers of people are taking this advance to bridge this five-week wait. But what that's doing is that's leaving people this kind of decision point where they can either take this advance and that immediately starts being clawed back out of their subsequent universal credit payments. Now, these, these subsequent payments were, were never designed to be generous. They'd seen cuts anyway. Previous debts as well can already be clawed out of that, plus people's advances. It means that very often now we're seeing people in food banks who've taken these advances and then got a, a horrible shock and they get their first actual universal credit payment and it's far too low for them to make ends meet. So you're left this horrible uh, sort of dilemma of um, destitution now, don't take the advance, or destitution down the line, you take it and you've got the money clawed back. And so people are having to turn to other agencies to make ends meet. I mean, also, it's, it's just wrong. You know, nobody in this country should need emergency food. Everybody should have enough money in their pockets to be able to afford the basics and to put food on the table for them and their families. Nadia is a young single mum on universal credit who had to turn to the Red Car Food Bank to feed herself and her child. I had to get an advance, otherwise I wasn't going to get paid for, like, over 30 days. And I'm still paying that off now, which... It's been, like, over 12 months, and I'm supposed to get way more than what I'm currently getting, which it's kind of hard to live on when I've got a little baby. So you have to put certain bills off every month, which is not good. But uh, it's like this month I've had to put off three different bills to pay for other bills. Finally paying one off and then you offer the others and then you finally pay them off and then you offer the others again. It's just, 
it's just a cycle of never-ending debt. <laughs> Tom, not his real name, is 23 and has been dealing with homelessness since the age of 18. The council has now managed to find him accommodation, but because of an advance, his monthly payments are not enough to cover his rent. When I first went in, it was going to be three, just over three weeks for my first payment to go in. So they advised me to get an advance payment, and now I'm paying like £75.53 every month. It's like, like kind of, could have took like 50 quid, 20 quid would be a lot better, 200 quid and stuff. Like, I meant to get 251, 200 quid I'd get away with, but actually 20 quid can go a long, long way. So for someone in my boat, or my shoes anyway. I finally got a house, but the woman told me it's going to cost about £188 to run, like, for a single person, and I get 176 So I'm going to have to make 12 quid short somewhere, could be lek, could be food. Tom was at the food bank for emergency food, but the charity were also helping him with a starter pack for his new home, including cooking essentials, toiletries and cleaning products. They were also helping him to get a bed to sleep on, as he didn't have the money to buy one himself. Team leader Peter says that food banks offer far more support than just something to eat, but the stigma around them means many are embarrassed to be seen using them, which is why Tom didn't want us to use his real name. The majority of them that are struggling with universal credit really don't want to be here. Those that are battling addictions and health issues, they're not so bad, they understand they're going to have to come. But the others are just simply suffering financially because of universal credit now they don't want to come through that door it's something krista has also recognized in her time volunteering with the charity i think it's not a nice is it when you need to come in you're living hand to mouth and you need to come in and ask for food and basic like gas and electricity when you as a parent as well when you can't provide them things for your children of course you feel like a failure and you feel like you're letting your family down so yeah a lot of it it's heartbreaking because obviously i'm a mom i know i know what we go through looking after our kids the minimum five-week wait for universal credit payments is not just driving people to food banks. It's putting many at risk of homelessness. Jasmine from Crisis also highlighted it as one of the biggest issues with the system. It leaves people with a significant amount of time where they're not getting money. And obviously, you pay your, you'll need to pay rent if you're living in a private rented home in that month. Um, and often, the people we support don't have the savings to kind of find money to pay that rent for that month. So it immediately sets people in a position where they're struggling from the beginning. And there are things like um, advanced payments, which um, the government made available to as a loan effectively um, to, to be able to cover costs during that period. But then when you have to pay that back, um, because the amounts under universal credit aren't sufficient anyway, when those amounts are then being taken off on top of that, again, people are really, really struggling. So we're seeing lots of people in kind of financial situations where there's just increasing pressure on their finances. And it's really difficult to manage and they're trapped in these kind of impossible situations where they're having to think about, OK, how do I pay my rent for the month and the food I need for the month? And many people are telling us that they're having to cut back quite significantly on things like food or heating so that they don't have to pay because they can't pay enough of a heating bill. And over time, that sustained pressure is just, it is just not possible to live with. And it just leaves people really kind of at high risk of homelessness. And, and we are seeing homelessness as a result of it as well. Like food bank usage, homelessness is also on the rise. More than 20,500 families across the North were found to be statutorily homeless in the year to June 2019 up from around 18,100 the year before. 
If a family is statutorily homeless, it means their council has to, by law, help them find somewhere to live. A household becomes eligible for assistance from the council if they are unintentionally homeless and fall within a priority need group, such as those with children, pregnant women, and those with mental illness or physical disability. In Teesside, the number of people accepted as statutorily homeless rose by 36%, from 603 families to 818 in the last year. The increase is three times as high as the national average of an 11% rise seen across England. While the five-week wait for universal credit is one of the biggest problems with the system, another issue is that the benefit freeze has meant that payments are simply not enough. Anna Stevenson is a welfare benefit expert at anti-poverty charity Turn To Us. Benefit rates were already too little to live off at the point when they were frozen, and they've been frozen um, for four or five years now. So they've not been keeping up with inflation. Um, prices go up every year, but the money in people's pockets doesn't. It's meaning that children are going to school hungry. It's meaning that people are having to choose between putting on the heating and buying food. It's putting people into real crisis. And it's a crisis that goes on and on and on. It's pushing people into food bank usage and it's driving homelessness. Jasmine at Crisis also highlighted the benefits freeze as a major issue. Well, one of the things we're really seeing is that the housing support under universal credit is absolutely nowhere near enough for people to live off at all. It has been frozen for four years now. And previous to that, we saw kind of years of underinvestment. So we've got a situation where that housing element, um, that support under universal credit and housing benefit is nowhere near meeting the cost of rents in many areas. Um, in some areas, it does it, it doesn't present such a huge problem, but in most of the country, um, it does. And we kind of found in kind of 94% of areas across Great Britain, people who might be in a, kind of a family with one or two children or single or couples are really struggling to find anywhere to live under housing benefit. And what you're seeing is when you don't have that enough of that kind of housing support to cover your rent, you obviously need to take some of that out of your other payments. So some of some people are having to use the remainder of their universal credit payment to top up that amount that they don't have because of housing. And that leaves them incredibly short um, to live off. So we're seeing people having to live off 30 or 40 pounds a month. Um, and that's to cover all their bills, their food, you know, really uh, essentials like basics, like clothes for their family if they have children. Um, and that's making it incredibly difficult for a lot of people. Maureen entered the benefit system after her maternity cover job ended and she found herself unemployed. The housing element of her payments was £15 a week short of her rent, meaning she had to top it up using the rest of her payments and cut back elsewhere. It's just kind of playing around with those different small sums that are coming in to see whether you can cover your essential living costs. Now, I always paid rent first which meant that I did have a roof over my head, but it left me very, very tight with anything else. And obviously I needed some transport and I also needed to be able to eat. So both of those I had to reduce on absolutely drastically. So when it comes to transport, I didn't use any trains anymore. I was only able to get around by bus. And I think it really impacted my ability to really feed myself properly. I was definitely not eating three meals a day. I was buying food as cheap as it could get. I wasn't missing so much the physical things as I was more impacted by the stress of having to manage such a small income and 
somehow obviously taking good enough care of myself that I would be able to meet the basic needs and on top of that look for work which is a very stressful situation in and of itself but is compounded by you know not being able to afford new interview clothes if I needed them um, like I said having to take the bus into interviews it really used up so much of my time and that's time that I wasn't spending on um, preparing for the interview or sleeping soundly it, it really hinders your ability to kind of get back on your feet at a time when you really need all the support that you can get. I think the worst is this stress of you know that you want to get a job. That's the whole point. The ability, the motivation to get those jobs is something that I think needs a lot of confidence in yourself. And, and you know, you shouldn't be afraid to keep on trying and trying, but all of that I find is very difficult to access if you're worrying about money. And I think anyone who has ever worried about money will be able to understand what I'm saying and probably know how it has impacted their life. Because you're always kind of wondering, where is the next meal going to come from? And everything that you do, you need to look at the price tag. And it's such an exhausting way of living. The amount a claimant will get in universal credit payments is also often limited even further by the benefit cap. This was first introduced in 2016 to limit the amount of money that can be claimed from the state. It stands at £20,000 a year outside of London for couples, single parents and families, and at £13,400 a year for single adults. The cap does not apply in some cases. For example, it doesn't affect those who receive working tax credit or who are over the state pension age. Before universal credit, only housing benefit could be capped. But under the new system, a household's whole award can be reduced, cutting into their entire income including into money meant for children or people currently too ill to look for work. Jasmine at Crisis says the cap is exacerbating the problems created by the benefit freeze. The amount you get for housing benefit will be um, a certain amount, but it will you'll be hit by the benefit cap on top of that. So then you don't get your full housing benefit, even though it wouldn't have covered all your rent in most places anyway. And then you have a benefit cap to kind of stop even if you would get a little bit extra on top. So it does really kind of take away from people being able to kind of live in, a, in, in stable situations and be able to kind of end homelessness and, and creates really huge problems. Since the cap was first brought in, nearly 15,500 families across the north have been affected, more than 800 of them in Teesside. The DWP say that the benefit cap was introduced to encourage people to seek work by ensuring their maximum income on benefits does not exceed that of a household in work. However, a report by the Parliamentary Work and Pensions Committee has claimed that most affected households are not in a position to escape the cap. The committee found that 82% of capped households nationally had already been assessed as facing barriers to work, mainly due to childcare and health problems, and had no conditions attached to their benefits saying they must work or even search for a job. Anna at Turn To Us agrees. The benefit cap is not working to incentivise people into work and government studies have shown that that's the case. Many of the people affected by the benefit cap are not people who are expected to look for work. They're people with disabilities, people with very young children, people who have really significant, meaningful barriers to work. The benefit cap is an extraordinarily cruel policy which particularly singles out single parents and people with disabilities. And the way the benefit cap works is that People are capped twice over, so already they're having the amount of money that they can get towards their housing costs capped by things like the LHA rate or the bedroom tax. And then it's capped again 
completely arbitrarily. It's a terribly cruel policy. The cap is not the only way that the amount of universal credit might be reduced. Claimants can also have their payments cut or stopped altogether if they are judged to have failed to meet the terms of their universal credit commitment, known as sanctions. Reasons for sanctions can include failing to attend an interview or refusing a job offer. The DWP say sanctions are only used when someone fails to fulfil their benefit commitments and affect fewer than 3% of all universal credit claimants. Across the North, nearly 11,800 people were being sanctioned as of November last year. In Teesside, the figure stood at around 380 people. So again, there is very little evidence to say that sanctions work in terms of getting people into work. The The idea is that people should have these claimant commitments, these um, activities that they've agreed to do in exchange for getting their benefit, and that if they don't comply with those, then they will be punished. The punishment of depriving people of all their income is often grossly dis- disproportionate to the thing that people have done wrong, like missing a meeting, that sort of thing. And it also places a huge amount of power in the hands of people's work coaches. So sanctions can pretty well be given at the discretion of the work coach because a lot of the claimant commitments are set at the discretion of the work coach. And challenging them is time-consuming, is difficult, it's hard to do without support. So people just end up getting stuck with these sanctions that they don't know how to challenge, um, can't challenge, and in many cases should never have been put on people in the first place. I asked Anna what the outcome might be for someone who has been sanctioned. Complete destitution, really. Um, So there are, people can access hardship payments, which are loans, and they are less than your universal credit entitlement or your other benefit entitlement would have been. You have to keep reapplying for them, so they're really quite onerous. You forget to do it once and you're left without any income. And of course, as we've already discussed, benefits are already not enough to live on. So when you're being expected to live off half of it, and you're going to have to repay that in the future when your benefit does finally come back into payment, well, you can imagine it leaves people in an absolutely terrible situation. Krista at the Red Car Food Bank also raised sanctions as one of her biggest concerns with universal credit. I just don't think the sanction system's fair. Um, Some people get sanctioned for reasons like, silly reasons really, like not being able to make an appointment through illness. You know, people do get ill um, and there just seems to be no no grace for them at all. So if they they don't jump through every little loophole, it's like the benefit system's just looking for a reason to stop the money um, and then sanction them for however long. And some like we've heard today, somebody's been sanctioned for almost four years because he can't meet the requirements. Literally, they're making it impossible for him to meet their requirements so it's like what you do in that situation we spoke to david which is not his real name the food bank user that krista was referring to she said she sent me a letter for an appointment and i never got the letter and then they've sanctioned me and now i've been sanctioned for four year four year sanctions and like i've said can't you squash the sanctions you know what i mean i'm not finding it hard and they haven't done nothing and then i'm having to apply for hardship and I'm only getting like £100 for like a month, do you know what I mean? How's that meant to last me a month? I could manage if I got my proper benefits, I would probably be able to manage it, but when you're not getting your proper benefits and then sanctioning you for like the length of time they do, because at the minute I'm having to pay like, when I'm getting like my hardship, I'm having to pull £85 out of the £100 for my rent, top up, do you know what I mean? And that's every month. 
So I'm left with like a daft 20, 30 pound, do you know what I mean, for myself. And then I've got to buy like the gas electric, your food, do you know what I mean? You can't do it, it's just too hard. And then you've got like the kids wanting this, that and the other. And it's hard. Well, I'm getting more depressed basically. I'm already suffering with stress, anxiety and depression. And then I'm finding I'm taking out on the kids, do you know what I mean? Like snapping at the kids all the time. And it's not fair on the kids. Because at the end of the day, all they're trying to do is be the kids' selves, you know, like kids do. And it's not fair. It is hard on the kids. And then you're finding, like, you're going out and getting, like, loans off people. So then when you get money coming off the door or whatever you get, it's gone because you've had to pay it out to pay back for what you've had. It's a nightmare. It really is. Gary from the Trussell Trust also believes that sanctions are not the best way to ensure that people are moving away from benefits and into work. To be sanctioned, to have money taken away from you, to be punished, to be stressed when you already potentially have mental health problems, but half of people referred to feedback have got mental health problems. It's putting people in a downward spiral. And what our benefit system should be doing is anchoring people from poverty, giving them a base from which to rebuild. And instead, with measures like sanctions, people are being punished. As you've got kind of less and less money coming in, your options and your life narrows down dramatically. You get more and more trapped until you're having to make these awful, impossible decisions of do I switch the heating on or do I buy cereal so my kids can have breakfast? And that's no way to live. Any of your listeners who, who would have gone for job interviews and stuff would know that's quite a stressful and difficult experience. You need, like, nice clothes for it. You need to feel confident. You need to be able to, you know, really smash that out of the park. You need to be in a good kind of positive place to do that. Sanctioning somebody, punishing them, taking their money away, constricting their options is not helping them get on in life. The DWP have announced an end to single fixed period sanctions lasting more than six months. So hopefully the experience of David won't be repeated. They've also announced other changes to universal credit, most notably an end to the benefits freeze. It will mean that universal credit payments will rise by 1.7% in line with inflation in April. However, Anna from Turn To Us warns that this is not enough. Of course, we do welcome the benefit freeze ending, but we're still looking at a situation where people's incomes haven't increased with inflation for many years. So we're really glad that it's ending. It is right that it should be ending, but it was a policy that should never have been imposed in the first place. And ending it now doesn't undo all the harm that it's done and will continue to do. To make up the difference, there'd have to be a significantly above inflation rise, which isn't what we're looking at. Jasmine at Crisis also says that increasing housing benefits by inflation will not solve the problem. Housing benefit previously was linked to market rents, so it was linked to local rents in an area. Um, and increasing that by inflation in most places offer people very little support. And because it's no longer linked to rents, it doesn't really make sense because what you would have is if, if it was linked to, so we want it linked to kind of the cheapest third of rents uh, or the bottom third of rents, which is what um, housing benefit covered previously. And if you had that situation, um, you would always make sure that people are just able to live where they are. Um, you wouldn't kind of be essentially giving people an amount of money that doesn't, that isn't related to rents where they are. It's, it's become a completely random number because it has been cut for so long it was frozen um, and now increasing it by inflation just means it's, a, it's an amount that doesn't really make sense. In particular, Anna highlights the fact that the inflation level increase to local housing allowance will make very little difference in Teesside. 
Teesside's relatively lucky in that they do still have a reasonable number of properties that are in that affordability category, but the changes to the LHA rate are going to make very little difference at all. So in Teesside, that means that the changes to the LHA rate, there will be one more property affordable in Teesside. The government have also announced that from July, the transition period will be reduced from five weeks to three when moving from certain benefits onto universal credit. However, this will only apply to people who've been moved onto the system as part of the full rollout via managed migration, which is currently only being piloted in Harrogate. Those moved onto the system through natural migration, in other words, the vast majority of people, will not be eligible for this transitional protection. Gary from the Trussell Trust says that these changes have been really important and positive, but again says more needs to be done. Those changes will make a a huge difference to millions of people now and in the future. And we called for those and we really, really welcomed them when they were brought in. One of the interesting things about this is when you've got so many people living on such a tight budget, changes which put like a couple of quid in people's pockets every week can actually make all the difference. But conversely, things which take a couple of quid out of people's pockets can actually be quite disastrous. So they're significant changes and they'll make a real difference. And, and, and for lots of families, that it, that might be the measure which will stop a further spiral down into poverty, which is harder and harder to lift people out of the further down they get. However, look at the numbers that you know we talked about at the top of this podcast. Obviously, it's not enough and more has to be done. In uh, you, you talked about those benefit run-ons, they're called, um, which mean that people have a shorter wait. That, to me, is a recognition from government that, you know, for these people, a five-week wait is simply too long. And they've recognised that and they've done something about it. What we want to see is nobody having to endure that five-week wait because it's causing so much trouble. So that would be um, probably my number one ask. Most of the claimants that we spoke to said that they would like to see universal credit scrapped and a return to legacy benefits. However, it's highly unlikely that this is going to happen. Jasmine at Crisis says the priority now should be ensuring that universal credit actually works rather than trying to get rid of it altogether. Because of where we are with universal credit, it would be really difficult um, to roll it back, for example. So I think we're in a place where we need to make sure that whatever our welfare system looks like, it's actually responding to the realities of people's lives and offering people enough support and the right support that actually helps people kind of get back on their feet or live in a way that they're able to thrive and not struggle. Gary from the Trussell Trust agrees. It's sort of overall, we want to see a system which means people can get more money up front to stop them getting further into debt, get that money a bit more regularly as well, more flexibility from the system. So we will you know, obviously be speaking to DWP and we, we do often to kind of push for those, those measures to make it better and to make it this poverty fighting machine that it should be. Gary encourages all of our listeners to put pressure on the government for more investment into universal credit ahead of the budget in March. Now's the time to, to speak to your MP and ask them to ask the Chancellor to put more money into this system, which millions and millions of families are eventually going to be relying on. Thank you for listening to another episode of The North in Numbers with me, Annie Goak. And thank you so much to all my guests for sharing their stories and expertise. Join us again on the 6th of March when we'll be exploring the boom in breweries and the craft beer revolution seen across the North. The Northern Numbers is a laudable production.